Would you believe that the arrest of a CIA double agent who spied for Russia and had at least 10 foreign agents killed wasn't the headline story? What possibly could have had the entire country's attention that nothing else mattered? Find out on this episode of Top Fold. Welcome to Top Fold, a podcast about all the news that would have been. I'm your host, Luke Hefley. Here at Top Fold, we explore monumental events that didn't make the top story only because that spot was already taken. Keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. Michael Corleone, The Godfather, Part 2, played by Al Pacino. The United States and Russia have been living this quote since having been allies in World War II. The battle between the two countries to be the world's reigning superpower makes accurate intelligence gathering a must. Enter the spy game. But this game is real and has deadly consequences. Both countries know each has spies and moles and are in a constant battle to protect one and find the other. For almost a decade, CIA agent Aldrich Rick Ames was a double agent. While spying for the United States, he was also giving Russia and the KGB some of America's most sensitive information. In 1985, Ames met with the KGB at the Soviet Embassy in Washington, D.C., and for $50,000, he gave them names of Soviet citizens who were cooperating with the CIA. Over the years, he collected at least $2.5 million. Others believe it was twice that as he compromised 55 intelligent operations and turned in at least 10 Russian agents who were later captured and killed. The CIA suspected a leak. In 1993, they were convinced it was Ames. After looking into Ames' finances and his unexplained wealth, they knew something was awry. They began to scrutinize his every move 24-7. The CIA never witnessed direct communication between Ames and Russia, but they discovered he was using dead drops or prearranged hiding places where he would leave the documents to be picked up later by KGB officers. But how was he communicating? They were baffled. Then one day, while Ames was walking along a quiet street in D.C., he casually reached over with chalk in hand and made a mark on the side of a standard blue U.S. Post Office mailbox. To the untrained eye, it would have been missed. This was how he was able to trade secrets back and forth. The mark let the KGB know he wanted to meet. When the CIA learned Ames had scheduled a trip to Moscow, they feared he would defect or worse, so they moved in. On February 21st, CIA agent Rick Ames and his wife Rosario were arrested, both officially charged with espionage on the 24th. But you would be hard-pressed to find that news in the papers or on television. During these days, a different event condemned the Ames story to newspaper back pages. What could have taken the headlines away from a CIA double agent responsible for the deaths of at least 10 Soviet agents working for the United States? and put American agents in danger, maybe even had them killed? During this time, there was another event that had the entire world's attention. All eyes were on a small town just over 1,200 miles northwest of Moscow in Norway. Everyone was watching the real-life drama of two American skaters by the name of Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding. The 1994 Winter Olympics Women's Figure Skating Competition would Kerrigan be well enough to compete? Would Harding even be allowed to compete? This story had been in the news for seven weeks, and now it was showtime. 
But what made figure skating a global sensation? Just this. On January 6th, at the 1994 U.S. Nationals in Detroit, Michigan, a hitman by the name of Shane Stant attacked Nancy Kerrigan. In a small hallway leading to the rink, using a 21-inch collapsible baton, he struck Kerrigan at least twice, just above her right knee. A direct blow to the knee would have ended her career. He fled and was on the run for days. Almost immediately, many speculated that Harding was involved. The differences between Kerrigan and Harding couldn't have been more stark. Nancy was elegant, well-off, and wore designer costumes. Tanya smoked, was divorced, and grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. Since Kerrigan was unable to participate, Harding, known for being the only American to have completed the very difficult triple axle in competition a few years earlier, won the U.S. Nationals and was awarded one of the two coveted spots on the U.S. Olympic team. Within days, those closest to Harding confessed. Her manager and ex-husband Jeff Galuli and her bodyguard Sean Eckert devised the plan and said that Harding knew about it from the very beginning. They openly discussed cutting Kerrigan's Achilles heel, causing an intentional car wreck, and even plotting murder by a sniper before deciding on the attack in Detroit. On February 1st, just three weeks before the Olympics, Galuli pleaded guilty to the crime of racketeering. In exchange for a lighter sentence, he implicated Harding. She denied everything, saying, Despite my mistakes and rough edges, I have done nothing to violate the standards of excellence in sportsmanship that are expected in an Olympic athlete. Later, the authorities recovered Kerrigan's practice schedule from Harding's trash, and a handwriting expert confirmed that Harding had written the notes. She had known where Kerrigan was every day. Keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. Although Harding denies to this day that she had prior knowledge of the plan— Few believe her. Her team knew that with Nancy Kerrigan healthy, Harding would not make the Olympics and receive the lucrative sponsorships that would follow. Fast forward to the evening of Wednesday, February 23, 1994. The entire country watched the short program of the ladies' single competition. The U.S. Olympic Committee had chosen Kerrigan and Harding, along with 13-year-old Michelle Kwan, to be the alternate if needed. The event ranked as the third highest sporting event in television history behind only two Super Bowls, a sports scandal like no other. The media latched onto it as a petty catfight gone criminal. No one knew how the crowd would react when Harding took the ice. Surprisingly, they genuinely cheered for her. Despite the pressure, she did well. Some contend that the judges were overly harsh, but she was now 10th overall, Still in contention for a medal, but it would take a flawless performance during the long program if she still wanted to be on the podium. Soon, it was Nancy Kerrigan's turn. She skated a fantastic program. Almost the entire stadium, even fans of opposing skaters, gave her a standing ovation. Now in first place, she was beaming. She had won the short program, which counted for one-third of the entire score, and now this competition was hers. All the while... Back in the United States, the CIA and FBI were trying to find out if Ames had any accomplices, and if so, whom. The list of crimes against Ames and their severity were devastating. But still, all anyone could talk about was Nancy and Tanya. Friday, February 25th, now the big night. Would Kerrigan keep first place? Would Harding nail the triple axel? Who would win the gold? When it was Tanya Harding's time to skate, her name was announced over the loudspeaker. But no Tanya. Some nervous chatter from the crowd, but still no Tanya. 
Cameras in the back caught the latest drama unfolding. Her lace had broken, and in haste, her team had replaced it with a much shorter one, and it wasn't tight enough. While the countdown clock was ticking away, CBS commentator Scott Hamilton said he didn't believe Harding would make it to the ice on time. But frantic, and with just six seconds left before disqualification, Harding did make it. She appeared physically distraught from the outset. Her first jump should have been a triple Lutz, required and easy. She did a single. Silence fell over the stadium. She quit her program and immediately went to the referees to show them her skate with the extremely short lace. For an agonizing 45 seconds, she tearfully pleaded her case. Ironically, her choice of music, a score from Jurassic Park, a movie about predators taking out innocent victims, was still blaring over the loudspeakers. It was surreal. Hamilton said he had never seen this happen before. It was decided that Harding would compete much later, allowing her to fix the problem. Eventually, Harding returned to the ice. Some in the crowd booed. Harding went for her first jump, the triple Lutz, and nailed it. Flawless. Now, the second big jump. The one that would put her in the record books, and most likely first place, the triple Axel. No other skaters were even attempting this jump. All during the weekend practices, Harding always completed this jump. This was it, her big moment. She singled it, only completing one mid-air turn. She didn't fall literally, but metaphorically, she crashed. However, the rest of the program went great. She did triple loops and triple lutzes and never fell during the entire program. When she finished, the crowd cheered. After Harding's scores were posted, she was in second place. But with the top eight skaters left to perform, everyone knew she most likely would not be there long. After China's Chen Lu performed, it was now Nancy Kerrigan's turn. Giving the trauma of her U.S. teammate possibly conspiring to cripple her, the media spotlighting her every move 24-7, and seven weeks of recovery, how would she do? Let's just say if Harding had metaphorically fallen, Kerrigan metaphorically soared. Her almost flawless program had one jump that was supposed to be a triple flip, similar to a Lutz, and she only did a double. She did it beautifully and very early in the program, and all the other triple flips, loops, and Lutzes were flawless. Her scores put her in first place. The gold would be hers with just one skater left, the 1993 reigning world champion Oksana Bayul. Bayul performed a show for the ages. With Broadway show tunes as her score, she captivated the crowd. Knowing that she needed something more to beat Kerrigan just before the program was over, she improvised. Exhausted, in pain, and knowing that a fall would drop her out of metal contention, she did an additional triple loop. She nailed it with seconds to spare before finishing in the center of the rink. Everyone knew the scores would be close. And were they ever. Nancy Kerrigan got first place votes from Great Britain, Canada, Japan, and the United States, while Bayul received first-place votes from Poland, Czechoslovakia, Ukraine, and China. A 4-4 tie. That left it up to the German judge, Jan Hoffmann. His score for the technical part was 5.8 to 5.7, Kerrigan. For artistic impression, 5.9 to 5.8, Bayul. Add them together, and that's 11.6 to 11.6. A true tie. However, the long program tie is broken by whomever has the higher artistic impression mark, and that was 
by all. So by the margin of one-tenth of one point by one judge, Kerrigan took home the silver instead of the gold. The closest margin in Olympic figure skating history. On March 16, 1994, less than three weeks after the Olympics, Harding admitted she learned of Galuli's involvement after the assault but didn't inform authorities. She pleaded guilty to conspiracy to hinder prosecution and was sentenced to three years probation, over $100,000 in fines, and 500 hours of community service, but no jail time. She was stripped of her 1994 national title and was banned from participating or coaching in any professional or amateur United States figure skating sanctioned events. Galuli was later sentenced to two years in prison, and Eckert and Stant also served time for the assault. So what about the eclipse story of CIA double agent Rick Ames? On April 28, 1994, Ames admitted his crimes and received life in prison without parole. Because of a plea bargaining agreement, his wife received just over five years. After an investigation by CIA Director James Woolsey, five active and six retired agency officers were only reprimanded. Surprisingly, no one was fired or demoted. Some say that because there was hardly any attention given to the Ames arrest and admission of guilt, the CIA believed the failure would go relatively unnoticed. Because so many paid such close attention to figure skating, they were also willing to pay big money to see the skaters again. CBS was all too willing to make that happen and created Ice Wars, the United States versus the world, where almost the entire lineup of skaters from the Winter Olympics, women and men, were featured, including from past Olympics as well. Of course, ABC and NBC quickly joined the fray. In the fall of 1994 alone, there were 70 events in 90 days, many live and in prime time. Nancy Kerrigan was paid millions from sponsors and appearance fees. Bayul moved to the United States, hired an agency, and gave up her amateur status for a million-dollar contract along with other incentives. Many of the top skaters were receiving $50,000 in appearance fees week after week. Ames is prisoner number 40087 Dash 083, serving his life sentence in a medium-security federal correctional institution in Indiana. With congressional outcry over the event and the extremely light punishment to the officers, in December of 1994, with ice capades going on all over the country, Director Woolsey announced his resignation. Harding watched from the sidelines as the only sport she ever knew was now making millionaires out of the same people she had despised for so long. Her greed drove her to cover up a crime that ironically caused her rival Nancy Kerrigan to be richer and more famous than she would have ever been otherwise. And there you have it, all the news that would have been. Thank you for joining us this week on Top Fold. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Top Fold Podcast and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcast. All my sources and research can be found at topfold.buzzsprout.com. There, along with other things that bring history to life. I'd like to thank David Wagler for the music. And if you like the show, please rate us and give us a review. Or simply tell a friend. That would be great. So until next time, there you have it. All the news that would have been.